We come this morning to our next passage in the Gospel of John, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, and reading our sermon passage this morning is Hope 10. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that in it you show us who you are and what you're about, and so you show us who we are in you. As we meditate on these verses and these moments, work beyond our ability to peace insights together and comprehend and work by your spirit, Lord, to show us Jesus and his glory. And in us seeing this revelation of who he is, Lord, transform us to be like him. We're in the name of Jesus. In the 1960s, when black men and women began to organize and vocalize the realities of what white supremacy had meant um, and, and how it wreaked havoc on the communities, there were a number of different forms of protest. You've probably seen them on the news if you've ever watched any. You, you see the, you know, the marches for voting rights. That's one of the obvious ones. People marching for voting rights. Or sit-ins. Uh, you know, if you've ever been to Greensboro, you can still see the Woolworth. It's actually uh, the Smithsonian now. The Woolworth lunch counter, where people, uh, students at NCA and T, decided to walk into this restaurant and said, "White on, whites only." sit down at the counter and wait for them to either be served or forced out. That day they were forced out. But that was a sit-in. They would go into a restaurant and sit down. Have you ever heard of a swim or a wave in? This one isn't as well known as maybe marches and sit-ins, but this one uh, people would do is pools that folks said, these are whites only pools. You're not white kids swimming in these pools. They would show up at these pools and swim. And they would sit in the water and kind of wait to see what was going to happen. Now, most of the time, these wave-ins or these swim-ins would end very poorly. Um, they would turn violent. People, uh, white people who did not want these black men and women and children swimming in their pools would jump into the pool and pull them out, punch them. They called cops. Or in probably the most famous example. I can see the picture in my mind's eye, 1964, St. in Florida. A guy came in with gallons and gallons of acid and poured it into the pool. This was foolishness, of course. Hatred and bigotry, they never actually make any sense when you pull back and look at them. They're by definition, ridiculous. Well, in 1969, I bring all this up because in 1969, Mr. Rogers, my favorite dude, in the world, I spent a lot of time with Mr. Rogers over the last four years for some reason. Um, I'm a four-year-old. Uh, 
But in 1969, Mr. Rogers decided to address this on his show, Mr. Rogers' name. And instead of getting a moment in the camera where he looks into the camera and he tells them what was wrong or gives them a lecture, which is something he had done before, was one of you know, the methods of teaching he used, he decided to speak with an action. So what he did is he created this scene. It was Mr. Rogers and the local neighborhood policeman, Officer Francois Clements. Mr. Rogers is in his backyard on a hot day, and he's got this tiny little pool. He's got water in the pool, and he's putting water in the pool. He's got his feet in it. Officer Clemens walks up, and Officer Clemens, who is black, is invited by Mr. Rogers, who is white, maybe the whitest man that has ever existed in all the caricatures of what a white man is, invites Officer Clemens to come and join him. So what Officer Clemens does, he comes in, he takes his boots off, he sticks his feet in the water, and then the camera zooms, I watched it like five times this week, camera zooms in on their feet. So they're talking, and while they're talking, you see in this tiny pool, like the, tool, the pool was really small, but their feet are touching at some points. You see black feet, white feet. You see Mr. Rogers take the hose and he starts to wash off Officer Clemens' feet right there. And they're talking about how refreshing it is to sit there together and have a moment to talk. And this scene only lasts two and a half minutes. It's very short. It's very short. And Mr. Rogers says, as Officer Clemens is saying, i got to get back to work. And he takes his feet out. Mr. Rogers hands him his towel, drives his feet off. Mr. Rogers says, I know how busy you are, but sometimes just a minute like this will really make a difference. Sometimes just a minute like this will really make a difference. I bring all that up because... What we had at the beginning of John 13, this passage that Hope just read for us, is something very similar. In fact, I actually think that this passage was the inspiration for Mr. Rogers, who was a Presbyterian minister. Um, I think he had this passage read somewhere in So we're going to walk through this passage a little bit. Um, this is a huge passage. We're actually going to be in it next week as well, this very same passage. But we're going to break it up and, uh, to kind of get our minds around it. To walk through John 13 to see what it tells us about who Jesus is and who we are in Him. So to set the scene a little bit, it's an intoxicating time for the disciples. And Jesus' disciples are feeling very important. They're feeling like they are the most important people on the face of the earth. They're the hand-selected followers of Jesus. At this point, they have been with Him for three years. And what has happened immediately before this scene is they have walked into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover, or right at the beginning of the Passover festival, where hundreds of thousands, perhaps as many as a million and a half people, have descended on the city. And as Jesus and his disciples are walking in, people are literally cheering, the king is here. Jesus is the king. So these are the guys that are walking beside the guy who has been celebrated as king, and this is the first meal that they're going to eat after that. So they are feeling incredibly important. You know, I, I was invited a few years ago, a friend of mine, his family had box seats uh, at, the, 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 at the Panthers games. And I had never experienced anything like this before. Because the week before, they're like, we're going to send you a menu over, you can kind of pick out you know, wings, mozzarella sticks. And I was like, yes, all of them. <laughs> Don't make me pick. But they're like, we're going to give you the we'll have an endless buffet. We're going to be I remember we got there, we had special parking. They sent us off. I didn't even know there were hallways inside the, inside the stadium. 
We walk through, there's a whole private area in between quarters. There's like a cover band playing for all the guys. I, I didn't know what was going on. But I was feeling mighty important. You couldn't tell me anything that day. Um, but they're experiencing something even bigger than this. And, and just to remind you, none of these guys came from wealth. This is not something they're used to. These were guys that worked with their hands. These were fishermen, carpenters. And they weren't even from Jerusalem, the big city. They were from far-flung Galilee, 75 miles to the north, the place that people in Jerusalem would go. Galilee. So these are guys that did not grow up ever with servants waiting on them. They weren't used to having people wait on them. But now, they've been celebrated as they're walking into Jerusalem. And they may have grown up lower class, quote unquote. No such thing as lower class, by the way. But they're feeling here that they have arrived. They've climbed some ladder, and they're the type of people that walk into dinner and don't wash their own feet. They're the type of people that walk in and they let the servants take care of that kind of thing. Let the servants get their hands free. So here, they have come to the table to eat this Passover meal, and they have filthy feet. Filthy feet. They didn't wear shoes like us. They didn't wear crocs that like have little holes in them. It's sandals. And they're walking around on streets that are not paved. And I remind you, there's like up to a million and a half people in the city at the time. It's dust everywhere. It's dung from animals. Their feet are disgusting. They're supposed to come in and they're supposed to wash their feet. It's what they would have done every meal of their lives up to this point. They walk into this room with filthy feet, and they are sitting around, essentially, waiting to see which one of them will accept that they are the lowest person on the totem pole, the lowest person in the room, and watch everybody else. It's kind of a showdown. They're sitting down, and they're like, well, I'm not washing my own feet. I'm not washing, but maybe Barnabas will. Barnabas wasn't there, actually. Maybe Levi will. Maybe Levi. Actually, John, the guy who wrote this, he was the youngest one there. Maybe they're waiting for John to wash their feet. But whatever it is, they're all sitting there and they're kind of looking at each other, waiting to see who's going to do it. And then we see in verse 2 that the meal is already in progress. So this farce has already lasted into the dinner. Like they're eating and their feet are disgusting, but it's because they refuse to accept. They're waiting to see who's going to accept that they are the servant in the room. That's how far this has gone. So into this preposterous scene of self-important men, Jesus stops eating. He gets up, and without a word, he takes off his outer garment. He grabs his towel and wraps it down his waist. And he speaks them in action. Into this farce, Jesus stands up and without a word begins to pour water into a basin. And he begins to walk up to, to kneel before his stubborn disciples to wash their feet. They wouldn't wash their own feet. They wouldn't wash one another's. But Jesus would. And this was shocking. Imagine how embarrassing this moment would have been. And the disciples seem shocked in the silence when Jesus is doing this. They don't say anything except for Peter, my kindred spirit, and he feels like my stand-in because he always puts his foot in his mouth. He always says the dumbest, most immediate thing that comes to his mind. 
Peter is shocked. He says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You wash my feet? It seems like Peter's God, right? He's understood. He's been shocked out of his stubbornness. And when Jesus says that Peter will think this is going to be ridiculous, but he'll understand later, Peter doubles down. He says, no, you shall never wash my feet. This is strong. The way Peter said, the way the sentence is strong, I don't like doing this, but in the Greek, in the original manuscript, um, I say I don't like doing that, and then I do it every week. But in the original Greek, the way the sentence is structured, it's Peter saying, no, never will you wash my feet in all ages. He's, it, I mean, it's not just never. He is like, there's three different ways he says no in this one sentence. Like, this is not, you cannot wash my feet. This will not happen. And it seems like Peter's been shocked out of his self-importance, right? He had this showdown with the other disciples, and nobody blinked. And then Jesus got up to wash their feet. But it feels like he got the point, right? That he was being foolish, that he saw what was happening. But now he's flipped to the other side. He's gone from self-importance here to saying that he's unworthy, that his feet must be too dirty, that he must be so unimportant, and Jesus so important, that he will not see his master brought so low. He will not see his Jesus brought so low as to wash his disgusting feet. Peter here believes that he is too low and Jesus is too high. But Jesus did not just do this action to teach them a lesson. Jesus did not stand up and fill that basin full of water to teach them a lesson, to put them in their place. He wasn't just trying to teach them a lesson where they would get it and go, oh, you're right, Jesus. If he was planning to do that as soon as they got it, he would have went back to eating. But he didn't. He wasn't just trying to teach them a lesson. He was trying to show them who he was. He was trying to show them what kind of leader he was, what kind of lord he was, what kind of master he was. We know that because of Peter's refusal here to allow Jesus to wash his feet. Where if he was teaching him a lesson, again, Jesus would have just been like, you got it, Peter, good job. Now let's eat. Wash your feet. Now let's eat. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless, you, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. That word part, it's like the idea of an inheritance, of a share. Jesus is a king and he's walking into his inheritance. Jesus is saying, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. You're not a partner alongside me. You followed me for three years, but unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is telling Peter, I don't want you to just get a lesson and feel humiliation and stop this foolishness. I need you to understand who I am. And I, understand, I need you to understand who you are. I don't want you to be the cowering student before me as your master. I'm not worried about putting you in your place. I'm worried about showing you who I am. And Jesus is saying here that what he is doing, what he is about to do, this is power. This is power. Whatever power may land in your lap down the road, Peter, Peter goes on to plant churches. Peter goes on to write scripture. Whatever power winds up in your lap down the road, Peter, this is what you do with power. 
you wash feet, you serve. This is what power does. Not your ideas of what power should be. Notice Jesus doesn't shock his disciples out of their pride and then demand they wash his feet. That's what I would have done. You know, I was the leader of a crew that suddenly got incredibly stubborn. I'd make sure they knew their lesson. And I'd say, no. Now you guys get it. Now you wash my feet. Because I'm the master here. I'm the king. Jesus was the son of God in the flesh. Wash my feet. That's what I would have But you can find that kind of power anywhere. You can find those ideas of what power is and what power should do anywhere at all. Jesus didn't need to come and die for that. But this, right here, John 13, this is the power of God. And Jesus doesn't wash their feet in spite of power. This is not him pressing pause on power to go do a service thing. Jesus is saying, no, this right here is power. John hits that home. You may have noticed at the beginning, let's see, what was it, verse 3? Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus had knew, knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. This is ultimate power. This is power beyond what we can imagine. All things given into his hands. All things given to his power. And what does he do with his hands? It's not in spite of power that he washes their feet. It is because of power. That's what power does in our broken world. It serves, it washes, it cleanses. This action is a demonstration of God's power. A power that is willing to serve the foolish, the foolish and their foolishness even before they've understood their foolishness. A power that holds filthy, hand, filthy feet in their hands to clean them. A power that holds our filthy hearts in His hand not to squash or to condemn or throw away, but to cleanse. Jesus has no use for definitions of power that include lording it over other people. He has no use for definitions of power that include trying to get to the top of the ladder so you can treat everybody else below you however you want. He was here to stoop down into the deepest filth we find ourselves in and to go however low it needed to be, even death on a cross, which is coming in just like a couple of days after this meal, actually the next day, he's willing to stoop that far to ensure that whatever has stained us be washed away. And that's what power does. And so even after they've been shocked out of their pride by Jesus' actions, he goes on one by one and washes their feet. And he does this so they won't just remember a lesson, but so they'll remember this moment. This is what I mean. They really need to remember this. Most of these men here in this room that Jesus washed their feet, they live on another 30, 40 years. In the case of John, who wrote this down, he lived until his 90s. He was a teenager. And they needed to remember this moment. Because after this, I've already mentioned it with Peter, they have incredible power and authority over him. Almost unimaginable. Could you imagine? Well, I can't imagine what would go on in my ego if I knew I was the writer of Scripture. You wouldn't be able to tell me anything. <laughs> but they're going to need to remember this. Because they'll have almost unmatched power and authority over people. Because in this gathering are church planters. They're going to scatter out to the entire known world to them. And they're going to plant churches in every place. What's going to prevent them from becoming religious gurus who just tell everybody else 
what to do. What's going to prevent him from becoming like the televangelist of our day and have private jets? And tell the widows at home who are living on their social security checks to send in for your blessing. What's going to prevent the disciples from becoming those men? This moment. This moment right here. Because there's going to be temptations for them to use whatever power and authority they have for their own glory. Try to build something where they're at the top and everyone else has to stoop down low and wash their feet. Either literally or figuratively. But when that temptation sprang up, I imagine they remember this moment. The moment that the Son of God took their disgusting feet in His hands and washed them. They probably remembered this moment every time they heard the sound of water. Every time they touched the towel. Every time they walked in to eat a meal and stooped down to wash their own feet. The Son of God washed my feet. I'm going to touch on all of this a little bit more next week because we're going to be in this passage again. And we'll look at the details of what Jesus says in the next about the need not only to experience his cleansing, but to copy him and imitate it in him serving others. But this morning I want to stop and I want to end our time in this passage with a couple of reflections. The first one is this. God is never just trying to teach us a lesson. God doesn't see us that way. He's never just trying to teach us a lesson. I've never been in the military. Um... But I think sometimes we can treat God like he's our, our drill sergeant. He's trying to beat us into shape. He's trying to uh, demolish our ego so we'll be a part of the, the clip and he can throw us out on the front line and we'll do what he says. Whatever misconception we might have, if we're carrying that around, get that out of our heads. That's not what God does. He's not trying to beat us into shape. He just teaches the lesson. Even in the midst of our deepest pride and foolishness, God is never just trying to put us in our place. It's not what he does. Remember here, the disciples were revealing that a deep-seated self-importance had taken root in their hearts. And Jesus corrects this, of course. Jesus will correct our pride, too. Because our self-importance is a sin that tears us and other people apart. But Jesus doesn't simply tell them that they are wrong. He shows them the beauty of a different way. He doesn't just reveal ugliness. He shows them the corresponding beautyness that will pull their hearts off of the self he doesn't just tell them they're wrong. He shows them a different way. May we never think of the ugliness of our sin without thinking of the beauty of God. And never consider God correcting us as Him trying to break our legs to make us kneel down. Or trying to gut our hearts so we'll really turn to Him. That's never what He's doing. The route that God has for us is one that leads to life and thriving. It's not an invitation to wallow in sin and guilt about our sin or shame for all of something being wrong for us. That's not what God's doing. To say it a different way, when God is at work to reveal our pride and reveal the depth of our sin, which He does, it is never, ever punishing. It's not punishing. It may be discipline. It may be God as a loving Father uh, correcting us and guiding us. But you are not now and never will be in the future being punished by God. Get that, that word just out of your mind. 
In Christ, we are free from condemnation. God is not about punishment. He's never put it us in Second was this. Get rid of other ideas of what is powerful or good. Get rid of other definitions of power. A number of years ago, uh, yeah, I grew up at just the right age. I think TNT had gotten the rights for a number of movies and they just played them all the time. Shawshank Redemption is still one of my favorite movies. One of them was Braveheart. I think I've seen Braveheart 300 times. And this is an aside. It's a completely inaccurate movie. Historically, it's like the Mel Gibson's William Wallace may as well be Gandalf from Lord of the Rings for all the history it actually has behind it. Anyway, but his depiction of this character, William Wallace, this man who stands up to the English royalty, we won't back down. This man who takes what he wants, who take up the sword and spill blood for the cause of freedom. This became this like emblem for Christian men's ministries. All of a sudden, everybody was like, we need to be William Wallace because we're going to get in there. And, then, and it was this idea of power, that real men take power. They take charge. And this is how they take charge. They say loud things and they were Viking. He wasn't a Viking, but I, I heard of a church that would do theological debates in their men's ministry. And if you won, you got the Viking helmet with the horns on. Like they pass it around. And if you were making a bad argument, like the people in the audience were allowed to throw stuff at you. It sounds silly. It sounds a little fun, actually. Um, but you gotta get rid of we gotta get rid of these ideas of power that we mapped out and put on Jesus. Because Jesus was not a way to us. And when power arrived, arrived into our world, it was not they can take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. It wasn't raising an army to go and ravage the English. It wasn't. It was washing feet. We can't have ideas of masculinity or ideas of power there. You know, you, you might like MMA. There's nothing wrong with mixed martial arts. That's great. But this picture that, you know, masculine, a real man that takes charge is somebody who does this thing and shoots guns and all these things. Like, those might be fun things that people enjoy. That's okay. But we have to refine our definitions, not just about power, but all things, about who God shows himself to be in Jesus Christ. We have to refine our definitions of what power is based on who Jesus is and what he did. In Jesus, God shows us what true power is that lasts. True power that is powerful, not just strong. Power that is power, not just dominance. True power is someone who has all things given into their hand and uses those hands to wash and serve. Who speaks with actions of love and humility. Who subverts our world of ignorance and pride and invites people to come out of the darkness. So the third one, uh, and this will be the last one, our takeaway from this passage, and this is really kind of my last point in every sermon. Um, so <laughs> it's see the depths of God, the depth of God's love for you. See the depth of God's love for you. In Jesus we see a God who moves heaven and earth to find us and save us from our foolishness and the foolishness of others that's been visited on us. A God who is willing to stoop and look absolutely foolish if it means that we be cleansed. A God who descends to us in our pride and our foolishness and touches us to wake us up who descends to us and joins us to himself so that when he rises in glory after taking on the utter depths of our 
human suffering in the cross and in his death as he rises in resurrection and rises with us with him to give us his life. Now we might not feel the, the physical touch of Jesus washing our feet. In fact, we won't feel the physical touch of Jesus washing our feet. You're not going to go home and a basin move across the room like a ghost thing and, and, and wash your feet. But none of this. As sure as water has touched your body in baptism, God has broken through to touch you. And every time you hear water running, every time you touch water flowing, every time you drive over a river that's going by, you can know that that tells me I'm not alone. The water of baptism has touched my body. And that's a symbol of a greater cleansing. And so that every time we can think of God's name promises to me that I can trust. He's a God who cleanses. We may not be in the room with the disciples here eating this meal with Jesus in the same way, but know that just as sure as you're going to eat and drink this Lord's Supper in a moment, that God has broken through to touch you every time. Every time you take up this bread and cup, no matter how simple and unimpressive they look and how simple and weird they may taste at times, they are emblems here in our midst that God doesn't just come to teach us a lesson, but He comes to nourish us on Him. And even though we may not feel the physical touch of Jesus the same way the disciples do, at least not yet, we, the people in this room, Together, we are emblems to one another that we are known. When we shake hands, when we fist bump, when we high five, when we hug, these are touches to remind us that we are not alone. We are physical embodiments of the gospel of Jesus Christ to each other. In this part of what it means when the New Testament talks about we are filled with God's Spirit, we're filled with the same Spirit that guided Jesus through His life. The same spirit that guided him to kneel down and wash the feet of the disciples here. We are filled with that spirit. And so when we speak words of gospel truth, when we embrace one another in times of grief and suffer, when we take hands and we celebrate with one another in times of great joy, these are reminders to us, not just that we have some friends, but that God has broken through to touch us. Friends, God adores you. Not because you've done a lot of things right and have Not because you've got something he wants and he thinks you're useful. You might be very talented, but that's not what God's having. He adores you because he does. And in God, we find a love that we did not earn, so we cannot lose, this foundation for us to live our entire lives on that will never give way. So revel in that love. May you know that love, and may you know that in the end, that love will be enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for what we see in this passage, this incredible instance that is really an encapsulation of the entire gospel. Jesus, the Master and Lord, descends and he kneels to wash and cleanse our stubbornness, even while we're still in the stubbornness. That when he arises, we have a share with him. We have a part with him. We are joined to him, and all that is his by right is our Impress this on our minds, and we never forget it. In Jesus' name.